Among the troubling programs on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list is the ability of Health and Human Services Department to manage the national response to health emergencies. In the most recent pandemic, the response of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was, you might say, disjointed. That left many other agencies to make their own decisions. My next guest says CDC reform should include a way to make CDC expertise available to help other agencies' responses. Sanjay Patnaik is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at the Brookings Institution. He joins me now. Mr. Patnaik, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the outgoing director proposed quite a number of reforms for the CDC to be more agile, to get its information out more quickly. Your idea here, though, is that there is an essential reform that's needed that is not addressed in this reform plan. Tell us what that is. Exactly. So what we have seen during the pandemic is really that an issue like a pandemic is a multidisciplinary problem. It affects a lot of different parts of the government and a lot of different parts of our economy. And so what we are proposing is that the CDC should actually be part of a, what is called an interdepartmental coordination group that basically includes multiple agencies that could be affected and have decision-making power in a pandemic, such as HUD and the Department of Defense, for instance. And so an interdepartmental coordination group would bring these different agencies Agencies together in order to share expertise, both outwards from the CDC, but also uh, to provide input from other agencies to the CDC's decision making. Right. And that really wasn't the case. You've cited a bunch of agencies that made decisions on how to respond to the pandemic completely on their own. Exactly. I mean, there was a lot of disjointed efforts uh, within the federal government, and we've seen uh, some of the problems that arose because of it. For instance, just to give one example, developing valid COVID-19 tests where the U.S. was far behind many other countries. Right. And then agencies like the Transportation Department or Housing and Urban Development, you felt made decisions that were just not informed by enough expertise from health professionals or people that had knowledge in these areas. Exactly. And the other way around, the, the CDC itself is a, is a body that is being used to having very long-term academic research. And so they also need to know feedback and information from other agencies to actually inform the decision-making and be able to more rapidly make decisions. So is your prescription for change something the CDC would do, or is it something that would have to originate, say, with a bill maybe in Congress to establish this type of interdepartmental committee and then CDC would be a part of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And so one of the templates that we can look to is the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, which coordinates homeless policy among 19 federal agencies, because again, it's like a pandemic, it's a very interdisciplinary problem. And that council was authorized by Congress in the Homeland Assistance Act of 1987. So we would need some kind of um, provision, some kind of act by Congress to establish a similar interdepartmental coordination group. But it has been quite effective, and it can show that when you try to coordinate these multiple agencies, that often decide in a very insular fashion, you can actually achieve much better results in terms of policy outcomes. We're speaking with Sanjay Patnaik. He is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at Brookings. And you cite a lot of agencies, again, as we've said, acting kind of arbitrarily or maybe the best they could with what they knew. But isn't that also true of CDC? Because the advice kept changing on what to do about masks and what to do about protective gear, this, that, and the other, to the point where there was pretty much mass confusion, not only among federal agencies, but among the public. What's the root problem there? 
I totally agree. And again, I think going back to my earlier point, one of the root issues is that the CDC is used to doing long-form academic research, right, but not moving very rapidly uh, in real time and then assessing different aspects that are not only scientific. And I think that's a key here, right? When we look at the pandemic, yes, obviously the health aspects, the scientific aspects are important, but the pandemic touches on so many issues of our social, economic, and political lives that when you make decisions, you have to take these into consideration as well. And that was one of the problems of the CDC. CDC's decision-making, they really only focused on the scientific and health aspects, but kind of like did not pay enough attention to the political and the economic context the pandemic was happening in and the impact that the pandemic had on these parts of society. But is that really CDC's role? It is not CDC's role, but it is important to make policy decisions by looking at the effects it will have on other parts of the economy, right? You can make a scientific decision based only on the science and the health, but you have to look at what will be the impact on other parts of society. And for instance, an example is school closures, right? Like you need to be able to know what is the impact if we close schools on the well-being of children, on kind of like the economic lives of people. And so in order to do that, it is much better to try to get information both ways from other agencies. Right. So in some sense, CDC would have to operationalize its research and its scientists to kind of join in a rapid response type of decision making. By the same token, agencies that make the decisions need to inculcate some of the research thinking before they go ahead and make those decisions. Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. And we do that already in other areas. And like I mentioned, the, the Homelessness uh, Council, but even CDC does that to some degree on bioterrorism, where they coordinate with other agencies. Right. So it sounds like there's a little bit of maybe sclerosis in CDC if they are doing this long-term research, gathering these studies and so forth in a variety of domains. I mean, there's a lot of diseases out there, but somehow they've settled into maybe a more academic mode or a more abstract mode and less of an operation mode because prevention and control is in their title. And I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, obviously, I mean, look, that pandemic was a once in a hundred years event uh, and it had such a profound effect on all countries around, around the world. So I think it, it like laid bare some of the shortcomings in government responses that we saw in, in different parts of the world, but especially also in the United States and the CDC was part of that. It's one of the challenges getting the political considerations out of these decisions, because that's how it seemed to go. People's opinions of what should be the right thing somehow settled out or sifted out into political camps. And that was part of the problem, still part of the problem in some ways. Yeah, that's that's a great point. We didn't dive too much into it in our report, but trying to make it apolitical is definitely something that is super important. And I think other countries that have been more successful in the initial response, they had less politicized responses and less politicized kind of like staff decision making in those health agencies. And I think that's very important in a pandemic, right? I mean, we, we don't want that to be politicized. We want it to be driven by the best science, but with taking into consideration all the different angles that we need to look at, like the economic implications, the political and the social implications. Yeah, I guess that's what they call common sense, because, you know, when you see <laughs> one of these headlines that says experts say blah, 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 you know, my initial reaction is how did the world ever get along without experts? So there's some way needed to marshal the expertise in a way that it informs what is ultimately common sense. You need to channel it, right? You need to channel expertise in ways when you try to implement them in a practical way. And, and I think there is a saying, right, like it's all about execution and about implementation. And, and the pandemic has shown that is really the case. 
Do you think the CDC would benefit from longer-term leadership? I mean, in agencies that have trouble responding or have other systemic issues, you often find that there is a just a turnover continually of leadership because they're politically appointed, they're high-pressure jobs, the press gets after you and so on, and so people leave after two, three years, as is the case for Dr. Walensky and you know her predecessors. Is that an issue? And should something like CDC, which, as you mentioned, is basically a research-oriented organization, should it have a term director? I think that could be really beneficial. And I think if we look at other places in the world, for instance, the European Union, that is what is kind of like the model for a lot of their decision making. It's more bureaucratized. So you don't have a lot of these political appointees. And I think that turnover can cause issues for the staff below, right? Because you have sometimes very different decision making coming in because of these political appointees. And in agencies like the CDC that are really focused on trying to rein in the pandemic, trying to solve these problems, long term decision making would be definitely better then the question becomes balancing that bureaucratization with accountability with someone that's there a long time. For sure. And there need to be mechanisms for that. All right. Well, we'll figure it out somehow. Sanjay Patnayak is director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his article at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.